We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw. We go tit for tat. We have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Runes podcast. This episode 61 of the pod. We have a special guest on here for our NBA offseason spectacular. We're joined now by the one and only Mark Shinowski of NBC Sports Chicago. He's here to shed some light on some of the uh, the Bulls happenings in, in these past few days and in the coming days. We're talking NBA draft. We're talking free agency. Mark, thank you so much for joining the pod. Joe, Matt, good to be with you. And Joe, I've been following uh, the way you've been covering the Warriors. That had to be a lot of fun for you to be out with the with the champions. I mean, talk yeah. about a dynasty in the making. I mean, three out of four, I think, probably already qualifies. And with the guys that they have on the team still being as young as they are, they could add a few more before they're done. It absolutely was a blast. And I'm glad you said that because it was odd for me after this to hear everyone asking if this is a dynasty. What is the criteria for dynasty nowadays where three and four years isn't an automatic check box? In my eyes, I don't know how else to quantify or to categorize what they're doing right now. Well, you know, as good as the Spurs were in the, in the early 2000s, people would, mm-hmm. were reluctant to declare them a dynasty because they never won back-to-back. And the Golden State Warriors have already taken care of that. I mean, with the Spurs winning five championships over the span of about 14 or 15 years, you know, it was a little more spread out. I think the fact that you get three out of yeah. three and four years, and the year they didn't win it, they set an NBA record with 73 wins. To me, that's already a dynasty. <laughs> and when you look at what, what they've got on that roster, I mean, the contract situation could get a little dicey in the next couple of years mm-hmm. because I'm sure both Draymond and Clay are going to want their due in terms of salary. And, you know, it sounds like ownership is willing to pay the freight on the luxury tax, and if they are... Uh, it's gonna, they could add two, three, four more championships. So it, it'll be fun to watch, and it'll be also interesting to see in free agency how especially LeBron tries to create his next super team to, to challenge the Warriors. I'm, I'm yeah, and, br- go ahead, Joe. Go ahead, man. I was gonna, I'm glad you brought that up, the Warriors, their contract situation, and, and you know, Draymond and Clay both kind of getting paid soon. KD's probably going to keep doing that two-year opt-out after one thing he's been doing, and, and that seems to be the new thing for superstars now. We kind of saw them struggle a little bit with Andre Iguodala out uh, those couple games in the the Western Conference Finals in the Finals. So how much longer can they keep this going if they do have to go over the luxury tax and pretty much put all of their assets, their money into those four without being able to build much else around them? Well, it always comes down to health, and you saw when Steph Curry was out, they weren't exactly uh, the juggernaut that they are when they have all four of those guys healthy. I think that Kevin Durant seems to raise his level of play in the playoffs. You know, I've noticed the last couple of years, he seemed to coast at times during the regular season, maybe a little bit bored, content to let other guys do the scoring. But I'll tell you what, when that guy is focused and he wants to go to work offensively, there isn't a better one-on-one scorer in the league. And, And with Steph's ability to create off the dribble, his unlimited shooting range, and the support roles that Thompson and Draymond Green play. In today's NBA, which is perimeter-based, you don't have a lot of teams that try to hurt you by pounding the ball inside to their big guys. That team is is perfect. You know, they can play Draymond Green at center at times. They can go super small. They also have enough size. You know, they got they got contributions from JaVale McGee in the finals. They're just a they're just a team that basically has answers for any kind of strategy you want to employ. And I think it's just going to take some other team coming up with the right combination of players that can maybe give them a different look. Because teams that try to outshoot them and play faster than them, like Houston was trying to do, ultimately that's going to fail. Yeah, we saw teams kind of come at them with different approaches, as you said, Mark. And it, it's become today's NBA. It's it's an arms race now. And whether that be through the draft or more likely in free agency, teams are going to try and put together a group of guys that can compete with these with the Warriors either in the Western Conference Finals or in the Finals. Uh, almost a foregone conclusion. But with that being said... Where do you see some of these big-name free agents going? I know uh, the soup of the day is going to be LeBron and, and on July 8th, his decision and, and figuring out where he's going. But there are some other big names. Where do you see the next super team, I guess, forming? Well, I think they've already been at work on this going back to last year when Magic Johnson took over as head of basketball mm-hmm. operations for the Lakers. I mean, he, along with uh, his GM, Rob Palenka, have been plotting 
for you know over a year now on how they're going to bring this super team together. And Pelinka used to be a player agent with contacts you know around the league. I think he's going to be a, a very powerful force in this whole process. I know that technically you can't talk to LeBron until July 1st, but players are, are plotting for long periods of time. I think LeBron is hoping that he can get himself, he can get... Paul George and get Kawhi Leonard to the Lakers and there is a path to doing that it's just a question of whether or not San Antonio and Greg Popovich is willing to trade Kawhi within the conference because Pop as we know can be a very stubborn guy and if he feels like Kawhi betrayed him in any way I don't think he's really going to be of the mind to help him create a super team in Los Angeles they could try to send him somewhere you know banish him for one year and then let him figure it out after LeBron's already made his choice on his next team it's going to get I think it's going to get pretty ugly unless unless they can come to a meeting in the minds where Kawhi realizes he can get that supermax contract extension only in one yeah. place in that San Antonio maybe he just uh, has a conversation with Popovich they smooth things over much like Popovich did with LaMarcus Aldridge who as you recall was looking to be traded at the beginning of last summer they worked yeah. that out and Aldridge had one of his best years in his career last season I wouldn't rule out the fact that Popovich gets in a room with Kawhi you know armed with that five year 219 million dollar contract and, and they work something out to keep him in San Antonio but the planning's already in place for the Lakers to create that super team it's just a question of who the character are going to be that LeBron brings with him. But uh, a, a one-year sentence in perhaps Sacramento isn't out of the question either. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, they have they have assets to trade, but I, I, yeah. I just don't think Sacramento would take that risk just because they haven't had a lot of luck in the draft in recent years, and now they have the good fortune to jump up to two. You've got Bagley and Doncic staring you in the face. Both could be multiple-time All-Stars. I just wouldn't trade that pick for one year of Kawhi Leonard because he's not going to stay there. So uh, I think and they have to continue the process of team building right now. That, that's really been the consensus around here. They've, uh, they've gone through the motions of, uh, you know, working out guys, working out Bagley. A couple of weeks ago, we were, we were in the house for the workout, and it, it, was, it really seems like they are going that route in maintaining their assets and even leaning towards if there was going to be some sort of movement, not moving for a big-name free agent, rather maximizing moving back to that 5-7 slot and uh, you know maybe banking a couple picks uh, later on in the draft. But uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how not only free agency and the draft coincide, but as you said, the movement that happens in those top 10 picks. You know, I really liked Sacramento's draft last year. I really liked De'Aaron Fox at Kentucky. I thought that was a really good pick for them at five. And then they were able to fill in. You know, they picked up Justin Jackson, who was a decent wing prospect. They got Frank Mason, and then they have the mystery man, Harry Giles, who nobody knows if his knees are even going to function or if he can play anymore. Are they expecting him to play next year? I think that uh, in talking with some of the uh, media relations people and front office people with the Kings, they do want him to play, and they've had him tabbed for the last couple months as Summer League being a a target for him. They're holding a Summer League here in Sacramento, so they might kind of do it uh, on their own accord uh, here right in their own backyard before sending him to Vegas. It hasn't been confirmed whether he's going to play here in Sacramento, but a couple months back I was told that they are aiming on launching him at Vegas' Summer League. That's why I don't think they can take Porter. I mean, you've got a guy yeah. in Harry Giles who Very some scouts were, were considered you know, the best player in his high school class with, with injury concerns. Why would you want to draft another guy who might be an injury risk? I think they, they have a need for another year. Yeah, they have a need at the four position. I mean, they've, they've got Scala, BCR, and, and is, is Randolph still under contract for next year? He is. He's always still under contract. Yeah, so, I mean, they really could use an upgrade at the four spot. To me, Bagley yeah. walks in there, and he, and he makes your team a lot better because he's not a guy you have to run plays for. He runs the floor, he can finish on the break, and he gets a lot of his points by, off the offensive blast. I mean, he's one of the quickest jumpers I've ever seen for a guy 6'11". Now, he can make those multiple jumps and, you know, miss a couple of shots inside and then eventually clean it up with a dunk. I think he'd be a great pick for Sacramento at two, and I just hope for their sake and for your sake covering the team <laughs> that, uh, that, that Lottie doesn't mess it up and uh, and do something crazy on draft night. Yeah, they seem pretty. They seem pretty in love with Bagley. Doncic also on the table, so I see it going one of two ways right there. Matt, what were you going to say? I just thought uh, you guys started talking draft, and that's kind of where, where I wanted to stay. Where <laughs> right. Because in here, here in Chicago, that's everybody seems to have their their different favorite for who should, who the Bulls should go for at seven. They have the assets to move up. Should they try and move up if one of those teams like Sacramento is trying to move back? 
Mark, I know you're a big Mikael Bridges fan. Is that who you see the Bulls going with at seven? Do you see them trying to go maybe a little more high risk, high reward if a guy like Porter falls to him? Where do you think they're going to go on Saturday or on Thursday night? Excuse me. Are they going to actually be picking it up? I feel like I'm, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm the one guy who's still <laughs> crying for Mikael Bridges, and everybody's ignoring me. You know, it's funny. Uh, Twitter is a powerful thing, and, and everyone's got their opinion on who the Bulls should take. And everyone seems to have concluded, I shouldn't say everyone because that's not accurate, but a lot of people in the fan base in Chicago really want Michael Porter. They want the Bulls to take a risk because if you look back over the draft history of John Paxson since he took over in 2003, and there have been a lot of really good articles written in recent days kind of chronicling the history that points out they've done really well over the last 15 years when you consider what some of the other teams have done around the NBA that most of their players have graded out uh, ahead of what other organizations have done but they're, they do have a, a demo they'd like to go for established players from winning traditional programs who have you know that uh that high floor kind of uh, evaluation that you know that at the very least they're going to be solid rotation players in the NBA. I think a lot of fans want them to take the chance because the way the NBA works now, you have to have three stars. Maybe Lowry Markkinen can be a star down the road, but they need two more. Uh, Zach Levine didn't really show that much in 24 games to get the fan base inspired that he's going to be a future all-star, and, and the jury's still out on Chris Dunn as well, although I think both of those guys are going to be really solid NBA players. But the mood of the fan base right now is, get me a star. They know that the Bulls are not going to be a player in free agency this year, maybe around the edges, but certainly not for any of the top players. They want them to take a risk, whether it's Porter, whether it's Mo Bamba, who could fall to seven. They want to take a guy that they could see maybe making two, three, four appearances in an all-star games down the road and being a guy who can be a difference maker in the NBA. Bridges would be a safe pick. Wendell Carter Jr. would be a safe pick. And, and realistically, that may be the way the draft falls, that that's going to be their choice on Thursday if they stay at seven, is one of those two guys that is going to be there. But I think Trey Young is going to go somewhere in the top six. I'm not sure exactly where. Orlando desperately needs a point guard. So I'm thinking they may take him at six. And if they do, if you look at the way the tea leaves are falling, I would say that means that either... Bamba or Porter is going to fall to seven, and I think the Bulls would gladly scoop up either one of those guys if they're still on the board. Mark, you, you kind of touched on it there a little bit. Uh, Chicago laying in the weeds this year in, in terms of big-name free agency and maybe putting piece number three and piece number two in place before they go by for piece number one. Uh, either next year or the following year in free agency. Is Chicago still a in-vogue free agent destination because in years past I guess in the past LeBron sweepstakes uh, they fell short and in other situations but uh, what is it going to take because you talked about the Lakers putting these wheels in motion years in advance are the Bulls putting any wheels in motion years in advance to go make one of these big splashes in the next two to three years well, unfortunately, I don't think Chicago has the cachet of some of these other cities. When you mm -hmm. evaluate what free agents are looking for, money, first of all, you've got to be able to have that max slot. Secondarily, they want to have a chance to win, and they want to play with other stars. And right now the Bulls can't offer that because they don't have a star on their roster. The other thing I, I think is hurt. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that's hurt them in, in past free agency chases, you know, they cleared the books in 2010 and 2014, yep. put themselves in good position to go for the elite free agents. And, you know, from people I've talked to, they were really close in 2010 to putting it together to get LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. And, and can you imagine what that would have been like to have James, Wade, Derek Rose, Luol Deng, Joakim Noah, Taj Gibson. I mean, that's they would have won multiple championships with that team. And it, you know, I, I guess in Chicago we're a little spoiled after having six years and six championships of the Michael Jordan era. Uh, you know, to, to follow that up with LeBron and Wade and that group, it would have been almost too much to ask for. You talk about hoops heaven. That would have been yeah. it. Uh, and then 2014, they couldn't quite come up with enough money to bring Carmelo, and in, in retrospect, that turned out to be the right. Might not have been the worst thing. His, yeah. his career kind of fell off the cliff. I mean, he had the he had the knee surgery, and then he hurt his shoulder. And he's he's only a you know just a shadow of what he used to be as a player. So they actually kind of made out better by by not getting stuck with Carmelo at that point. But my point is, they've done all the right things in terms of clearing cap space 
trying to make the right sales pitch that it's Chicago, you're in a big market, you have the history of winning. And today's players don't care about that. They don't care about the Jordan era. They don't care about those six championships. And a lot of these guys are also, you know, weather plays a big factor. And Chicago winners, as the three of us know, can be brutal. And, and I think uh, if it comes close, the weather hurts them. It's warm in the gym. We want guys that want to be in the gym. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so you, you talked about a little bit back going back to LeBron and whether or not he decides to go to the West. But if he does decide to go to the West, does that make the East Boston's conference? Or then do you, see, do you think you see teams, the Phillies lined up pretty good, but teams maybe in that middle tier like Toronto or, or Washington or even the Bulls be a team trying to go out and be a little bit more aggressive to try and go feel their roster to maybe get themselves up to that level because as good as Boston is, are they kind of the unbeatable force LeBron's been in? Uh, with the well, Cavs the past few years. Yeah, Boston should be should be dynamite. I mean, the, how far they were able to go taking Cleveland to Game 7 when they had Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving sitting on the bench in street clothes, although Kyrie wasn't there the last game, but that's a whole different story. Um, you know, they... They have so much power on the, on that roster, and it's a young group that's just coming together. I really love Jason Tatum. I mean, he has a, the makings of a big-time scorer in this league, and he's so poised. He was their go-to guy in that series with Cleveland. When other guys were coming up short, like you know, right. Terry Rozier was, was awful in Game 7 of that series, it was Tatum who kept him in it with some big-time plays. Jalen Brown took a huge step in his second year, and, and you feel like if Gordon Hayward can come back 100% healthy from that gruesome injury, and Kyrie Irving can stay healthy for a year, which is a, which is a major question mark. They should be the class of the East, but don't rule out Philadelphia either. They're going to try to make a run at LeBron and Paul George and, and maybe convince one of them that if they combine with Embiid and Ben Simmons, that could be the powerhouse in the East. And I grew up in Milwaukee, so I always keep an eye on what the Bucks are doing. And, and they did a nice job getting Mike Budenholzer as the coach. You know, that system he ran in Atlanta, the share of the wealth, uh, three-point heavy system where they won 60 games a few years ago. You know, he's going to have Giannis and Chris Middleton, and they'll probably re-sign Jabari Parker. They're going to be a team to watch. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, at 17 they grab a guy like Dante DiVincenzo and, and add another mm-hmm. shooter to that mix. I think that, I think they're going to be a pretty good team as well. Uh, you know, Cleveland will take a step back certainly if if they lose LeBron. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they try to blow it up or if they just try to work around the edges because they still do have some decent players in place. But I, I don't think it'll be necessarily a, a Boston-dominated conference for the next five or six years. I think teams will continue to make moves, and and the Bulls' hope is that they can get two good players in this draft, and then maybe in 2019. If somebody gets restless, whether that's, you know, Clay Thompson, I would say is unlikely. But Kyrie's always looking to make a move. So, you know, they could make a uh, a play for one of the top free agents next summer when they're going to have bundles of cap space. As we know, Mark, we're never short on storylines in the NBA. A lot can happen between now and then. Rosters could be shaken up, and uh, we will see where we are at in 2019. But to take things back to the draft a little bit, you're the Phoenix Suns, you're on the clock. Is it a, a no-brainer DeAndre Ayton type situation, or is there a chance we see a surprise at one? Oh, it's got to be Ayton. You know, obviously, yeah. uh, I'm a lot older than you guys, so I go back to the era of watching uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar play, and, and all the great centers are in the league, Moses Malone, uh, Robert Parrish, uh, Bill Walton when he was healthy. They're, they're, you know, center play has always really kind of been the staple of the NBA, and then later with Hakeem and Patrick Ewing and Shaq and David Robinson. I still have a soft spot for the big man who can throw it in the post and he can get you 30 points and grab 12, 15 rebounds. I think Aiton's going to be a monster. I watched a lot of Arizona basketball this year knowing that the Bulls were likely to get a high pick in this draft, so I was trying to watch as much as I could of the top 10 guys that, that I was projecting in the draft. Mm-hmm. And at times, Aiton looked like Shaq. You know, he was just a man among boys. He would just use his size and athleticism to just toy with guys in the low post. He also is a lot like some of the modern bigs, Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns, who have that nice shooting touch from the outside. Yep. I, I hope he doesn't turn into Carl uh, Anthony Towns, who to me has kind of diminished his, his value by shooting so many threes. But he does have that threat that he can add to his game. Defensively, he needs some work. He needs to take a little more pride in being a shot blocker and a presence in the post. But I think that he can be an old-school big who's going to be able to get you 25 and 10 most nights. And you put him with Devin Booker, Josh Jackson, and some of the other young pieces that Phoenix have, and I think they're they're on the track to building something nice down there. Yeah, yeah, that team gets good right away if you do add that big piece. And you, you mentioned it, how 
you know, it used to be a big league. Now it's all about guard play. And I really think it's cyclical. I think that teams try and follow these trends, but then when you get a big like Aiton coming into the league, everyone else is at uh, such a disparity when it comes to big man play that he can come in and dominate the, the league right away. Do you think that he is the most game ready, or do you look at a guy like Luka Doncic who has that big game experience elsewhere as the most playable day one? You know, I've watched a lot of tape of Luka Doncic, but I've never really seen an entire game of him, and I think that would be instructive to see how he plays throughout the course of the game. Because, you know, you'll read, you'll see highlight clips and you'll see game summaries, and one of the things they do in Europe, the game is shorter, it's 40 minutes as opposed to 48, and they, they play their benches more. So a lot of times he's only playing 24, 25 minutes in a game, so you don't really know what his stats might project to a 36 to 40 point uh, yeah. grid that he'd be playing in the NBA. I, I'm not 100% sold that he's going to be uh, a dominant player in the NBA. I think he'll be a very nice complimentary piece, a secondary shot creator. You know, again, going back to your situation in Sacramento, you've got Bogdan Bogdanovich, who I know showed a lot in the second half of the season. You know, mm-hmm. is Doncic going to be appreciably better than that? I don't know. I, I think yeah. he's got a nice, nice shooting touch. He's got good ball handling skills. But the word on him from NBA scouts is that they, they question whether he has great lateral quickness. And if you don't yeah, have that... slow laterally defensively. Yeah, playing the wing in the NBA, you're going to get destroyed. And we've mm-hmm. seen guys having to go to the bench because they can't guard the person who's in front of them. You know, we've seen that over the years with Kyle Korver, where at times he's a great shooter, but you got to take him out because who's he going to guard? And we'll see it. You know, Doncic has just turned 19. I think he's going to be a very good piece. But if I'm picking one, two, or three, I wouldn't take him. You know, I would go, I would go with uh, eight and one. Bagley two, and then take your pick at three, depending on on your needs, on, on whether you go Jaron Jackson or or maybe even Bamba as high as three. No, Mark, you touched on Carl Anthony Towns there a couple answers ago, and I, I kind of wanted it reminded me of the rumors with you know Tibbs and, and Minnesota maybe shopping him. What's exactly going on in Minnesota? Because it seems like when they got Jimmy last year, that they had the makings of what looks like a super team, and now. You know, rumors are Jimmy might not be there past this year. Tibbs might be looking to trade Carl Anthony Towns for something. What's kind of happened or gone wrong there? Because that seemed like a team poised to be ready to challenge for the West at some point. Well, you said the magic word, and that word is Jimmy. Jimmy loves himself some Jimmy. And wherever he goes, if guys don't want to, you know, fall in line and do things exactly the way Jimmy would prefer, he's going to chafe at it. He's going to make disparaging comments in the media. He's going to go to management and say, we've got issues. There was also a story recently, just within the last couple of days, that he's not happy with Andrew Wiggins' work ethic, and he doesn't know if he's going to be able to sign an extension with the Timberwolves because he wants to be around players who want to work hard to improve their games and want to win. We heard comments like that in Chicago that were kind of veiled shots at, at Derrick Rose and, and his work ethic, and then there became kind of division in the ranks with uh, Jimmy and then Paul Gasol on one side and Joakim Noah and Derrick on another, and it got it got pretty fractured, and, and that was why you know they ultimately had to you know blow that thing completely up. Um, Jimmy is is an interesting guy. Nobody works harder at his game than Jimmy Butler. He was the 30th pick, a defensive-minded power forward out of Marquette to, uh, who really didn't really have much of a perimeter game at all, and he worked his butt off to become an NBA All-Star, and I give him tons of credit for that. But in the process, he also became you know a bit of a prima donna, a guy that you know felt like his approach was the only way to go at things, and he's only been in Minnesota one year. I heard reports early in the season, back going back to December, that he was unhappy with with Carl Anthony Towns and the way he went about his business, and now you know he's he, he's not doesn't like the way Wiggins approaches his business. So uh, it's just uh, the the baggage you take on when you bring on Jimmy Butler, and and I, I don't know if they're going to be able to put together what everyone thought on paper looked like a good team into a team that can contend for anything in the West. Yeah, it's definitely, it feels like drama does follow Jimmy. Drama tends to follow Tibbs wherever they go, and uh, hopefully they can get things figured out because there's still some sort of Bulls nostalgia with that team just with uh, so many guys being there. But uh, it kind of begs the question, too, Mark. Jimmy Butler was a late first-round guy, I believe. Last pick, yeah. I think he was, yeah, he was the last pick of the first round. You have uh, uh, Donovan Mitchell last year coming in in the teens. Was he 12, somewhere around there? If you're a front office guy or you're a scout, what are you looking for to try and maximize those later picks and get the most value late in the first round or in the second round? How do you find value in those spots? 
to me, if I was a, a scout or an NBA general manager, what I would look at would be one dominant skill, something that mm-hmm. you know you can count on every night, whether it's a, a knockdown shooter, whether it's a guy who's jet quick, whether it's a guy who can protect the rim as a big. Those are the things I'm looking for if I'm picking in the 20s. I, I think you want to stay away from a guy who's a solid player. You know, like Jalen Brunson has been moving up draft boards, and I'm like, why? I, I just look at this guy like, he, you know, he's a backup guard for maybe 10 yeah. years in the league. Not a great athlete. He's, he improved his shooting during his time at Villanova, but I just don't see an NBA skill that jumps out at me and says, "Wow!" I, I'd much, you know, I mentioned Divincenzo earlier. Divincenzo, I, I, yeah. would, mm-hmm. I would much rather have Divincenzo if I'm picking where the Bulls are. Let's say at 22, I would take Divincenzo over Jalen Brunson in a heartbeat. You know, there's there's guys that that you see that that are they're coming out of high school. There's this kid from Florida who was from IMG Prep, uh, Anthony Simons. I saw him mm-hmm. at the combine. This kid looks like he's a he's a sophomore in high school. He's thick yeah. and uh, he's going to get knocked around. I, I would stay away from guys like that. I think you have to have one skill that really transcends um, all the others, and and that's that's what I'm looking for. And that's with Mitchell. It was his incredible athleticism. You know, his ability to get off the floor and create his own shot. You could see that, even though he played in a in a offense at Louisville that was kind of structured and really didn't run many plays to showcase his skills. He was not a dominant scorer in college, but when scouts saw him at the Combine, they saw that that he was a guy who could create his own shot and could get to the rim on almost every play. Similar story with Kyle Kuzma, who shot the lights out at the Combine. Here was a guy 6'9", who could put the ball on the deck a little bit, who could come off screens, who could knock down shots. It just takes that one skill that's better than, than any other. I think sometimes people fall in love with a guy. Like, the guy that uh, people are like this year is Lonnie Walker, the kid from Miami. But mm-hmm. I watched him play against Loyola. He did nothing. You know, he, he yeah. just... He just, you know, okay, he can run the court and he can jump. We've seen guys like that bomb throughout the course of history where if you don't have a defined skill, sure, you might be able to run fast and jump high, but you can't, if you can't do anything with the basketball in your hands, you're really not going to help your team that much. Uh, you mentioned DiVincenzo there. Are there any other guys that you see at 22 like that that you would like to see the Bulls take a flyer on and go grab there? Well, you know, we've been hearing those reports. The Bulls made a promise to Chandler Hutchinson, the small forward from Boise State. And he's he's a guy who I think would fit in a rotation as a 3 and D wing. 6'7", he really improved his three-point shooting over his last year at Boise State. What happens with a guy like that is he's played all four years. So now he's too old at 22. So he falls in the draft. And we've, we heard that about Mikael Bridges. You know, he, he's going to turn 22 before next season. So he has no ceiling. Um, you know, I think it's, that's lazy scouting and it's lazy analysis by a lot of the, the draft experts out there. Um, I think Chandler Hutchison would be an okay pick at 22. Guy I like who, who sh- showed really well in the NCAA tournament is Mo Wagner. He's a big mm-hmm. who, can, who can knock down threes. He can put it on the deck a little bit, and he's got he's got kind of a mean streak to him where he'll go to the rim and he'll throw it down on you. I think in today's game where you want to space the floor with your fives, I think he would be a good pick for some team in the twenties. Not necessarily for the Bulls because their center position is kind of a mess right now. You know, you got two old school guys and Lopez and Ashik who are under contract for next year, and then they made a terrible mistake in getting Felicio four years and 32 million and he's going to be on the books for the next three years because no one's going to take that money unless you know you take back an even worse contract so yeah. uh, I don't think the Bulls are in the market for a center but don't be surprised you know I know Wagner's been pro- projected to go early second don't be surprised if he goes somewhere in the 20s because big men who can shoot the ball are, are always uh, pretty highly sought after yeah there's definitely a market for that Mark I think this is the longest any draft conversation has gone without talking about the back of Michael Porter Jr. or his his questionable <laughs> medicals. Uh, you've obviously seen it through the Bulls lens. We've been looking at it out here from uh, from the Kings lens, and there were talks a couple days ago about moving back into that five seven range and getting Porter. You said that you've been hearing some rumblings about the Bulls maybe moving up to make sure they secure him in that same range. Uh, in in the case of Michael Porter Jr. is the juice going to be worth the squeeze? Do you think this is a guy where uh, he is going to be able to have a serviceable, uh, extended NBA career? Well, my good friend and my partner on our Bulls pre and post game shows, Kendall Gill, 
always tells a story that he played with Larry Johnson in Charlotte, and he says Larry mm-hmm. Johnson was one of the greatest NBA players he's played with or against. Even though he was only 6'5 or 6'6, he said the way that he could put the ball on the deck and overpower defenders, he said, was something that he'd rarely seen in a player that size. But Larry Johnson had a back issue, and it robbed him of his explosiveness, and eventually mm-hmm. it ended his career prematurely. And, you know, Kendall said, if I'm the Bulls, I would stay away from Michael Porter Jr. just based on his personal experience with Larry Johnson. He said back injuries can be debilitating. Uh, we saw it with Larry Bird. That ended his career. Uh, it's just a risk you're going to have to take. The medicals that we've seen, you know, done by the Bulls team doctors, so they have firsthand knowledge of it, show that uh, the microdiscectomy that they did is healed 100% that it's not giving him any issues right now, that the MRIs look clean. But there's always that concern that once you have a bad back, it seems like you just for, you know, people in everyday life, once your back goes, it, it causes you problems the rest of your life. It's always an issue, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think the mood of the fan base is let's go find a star. And I think if they drafted Porter and his back ended up shortening his career or making it somewhat less than what was initially projected when he was this high school sensation who was scoring 34 points a game. I think the fan base would be okay with it. I think they'd say, hey, at least we took a shot. Um, the Bulls wouldn't be okay with it because, you know, that's a you don't get to pick in the top ten every year unless you're the Kings. Didn't want to take a shot at them there, but that's <laughs> it the reality. Um, you know, I, I think that I think Porter is worth the risk. You know, to get yeah. back to your original question, here's a guy who was a, who was a dynamic scorer, who could who could shoot inside and outside, who could post up, who could drive to the basket, and that's the guy I think that you know you play him alongside a you know a dead eye shooter like like Lowry Market, and I think then you got something. I, I think it's a pick that I think if they if they want to move up a couple of spots, if it doesn't cost them a fortune. I don't know what the price would be. Let's say Porter's still on the board at five. I don't know what Dallas would be asking for. I'm guessing seven and 22 won't be enough. I think mm-hmm. you definitely would not want to trade next year's first round pick because you don't know what the, where that might fall. If they would take seven and 22 and a player like Portis, I don't know. I, 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 that would be tough because I think Portis really showed a lot of improvement over this last year. You're really rolling the dice to move up two spots. I mean, we saw it in football with what Ryan Pace did to move up one spot to yeah. Mitchell Trubisky. Um, how much is too much? And, you know, I think in, at this point, the Bulls have so many young players on their rosters, honestly. If they trade 22 to move up, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even give it a second thought. But if you have to throw in a good rotation guy as well, then you have to wonder, is, is it worth the risk? Because, as I said, if, if Trey Young goes in the top six, one of those top-level bigs is going to fall to you at seven. Be and there I think it, it, it might be. The one thing they have to worry about, I know the Knicks really love Michael Porter. So let's say Michael Porter is still on the board at six. Knicks get on the phone. They call Orlando. They say, swap picks. We'll give you our, our first-rounder next year or some other asset that, that the Magic like. And the Magic know they can get either Young or Sexton or Gilgis Alexander at nine, get their point guard of the future. They make that trade, and then all of a sudden, all of the top six guys are gone. And then the Bulls are, are sitting there going, well, what are we going to do? I don't think they're taking Trey Young at seven. So then it goes back to what we discussed earlier where you're, you're looking at the two safe guys, Wendell Carter Jr. and Mikael Bridges. Not that those wouldn't be great picks. Not that either one of them couldn't turn into a star player down the line. But from a fan perspective and even from a yeah. Bulls front office perspective, they're think, I think it, when they're sitting in their room right now, they're thinking, Guaranteed, one of those top six guys is going to follow us. If all six mm-hmm. are gone, there's going to be a sense of disappointment in that room, and certainly with the fan base. Speaking of disappointment, you definitely just hit a chord with us. The uh, Ryan Pace, uh, John Lynch saga has gotten a lot of play here on the Moose <laughs> it, and Roos podcast. It's, it's it been a stopped. constant back and forth for about 60 episodes. Now. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to get into it here. Because, no, we're not going to get into uh, it. I, I need to have to freshen up my water. I we're not going to. We're throat. not going to get into. You know, <laughs> to get emotional when we start talking. For your franchise quarterback, we're not going to get into. <laughs> Mark, don't um, don't start with me, Matt. Don't start. Um, I, I will change the subject in here after I got the last word on that one, though. Um, <laughs> gut feeling: Where are the Bulls picking Thursday night, and who who are they picking? Last to, to wrap us up here. My gut feeling is they're going to find out the price to move up is too high. I think they're going to stay at seven, and I think Mo Bamba is going to fall to them. I think they'll take Mo Bamba at seven. That's my prediction. What, well, there do you we like, what should we like about Mo Bamba? 
you know, I, again, I, you hate to trust these workout videos, but I did see a video mm-hmm. last week really caught my eye. He was working out with Joel Embiid and Joel Embiid's trainer, and he was mimicking Embiid's low post moves. And Embiid has the full Akeem Olajuwon torture chamber skill set. And Bamba was doing these moves right after Embiid, one after another. He looked fluid. He, it looked natural. I mean, if this kid with a 7'10 wingspan finds some offense to his game, he's going to be something special. And if they get Bamba at 7, I think the fans should be excited about it. I know the Bulls front office will be excited about it because then you've got, at the very worst, you've got a, a Rudy Gobert-type guy who can be your rim protector for a decade. And as we know, the Bulls defense wasn't that strong last year. So that is an area that needs to be addressed. I know Pax talked about uh, upgrading at the wing. They could still do that at 22 with the Chandler Hutchison or maybe even a Kata Bates-Diop, a player like that. I think if they would walk away with Bamba and Hutchison, it'd be a, it'd be a very successful night. I think uh, I think we're all on board with the Mo Bamba pick. If he comes down to it, thank you for selling us on that, Mark. And thank you for joining us on the Moose and Rooms podcast. We always appreciate having you on. We appreciate you shedding light on everything from the draft to free agency. No one better to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Shanowski with NBC Sports Chicago. Hopefully we can have you on here in a couple years, and we'll be talking playoff runs and not necessarily top five picks, Mark. Yeah, I would love to do that, and, and, and when the Bears get report for training camp next month, maybe we can go back into that whole Mitch Trubisky history as well. Oh, believe me, I'd love to. We can, uh, we can put a muzzle on that because uh, I've heard enough. We'll talk in two years when they win a Super Bowl. <laughs> there you go. All right, guys. It'll all be worth it. Thanks again, Mark. Mark Chalice, NBC Sports Chicago. My pleasure. Oh, big golfs, huh? All right. Thank you again to Mark Shanowski, NBC Sports Chicago Bulls insider. Mark uh, just shedding light on on things that needed to have light shed on them. He knows more about that team and the NBA than pretty much anybody in town. So we appreciate Mark coming on again. Always a blast having him. I know it's every time, you know, I talk to him at work a bunch. Second time I've had him on the Mm -hmm. podcast here. Every time I talk to him, I am just astounded at how much basketball the man knows. You mentioned Harry Giles. You could go point. any direction. He literally he, he went <laughs> he went for three minutes on what Harry Giles does well, doesn't do well, how can how he can affect the Kings next year if he's healthy. I barely forget like remembered who Harry Giles was. I had to think for two years. He was the kid for I think the kid from Duke from like two years ago that yeah. was hurt. Like I had to think to remember even who he was. Mark off the top of his head can tell you everything about him. Yeah, the big ski, always in the know, so we appreciate it. And hey, if you're looking for more of that uh, that in-the-know basketball knowledge, not that we can't give it to you. If you're looking for a little <laughs> more Bulls insider-ish stuff, the, the Bulls Talk podcast on NBC Sports Chicago, you can catch that on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all your podcast apps. Him, Kendall Gill, they, they do some great work on there, so be sure to check that one out if you're looking for some Bulls uh, insider info that uh, outside of our realm of knowledge. Not that we're not. That's a, we know that's it all. Perfect. That's a professional plug right there. That's, 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 a professional what, you know, plug. that's, that's how we do it, Joe. Uh, let's toe the line of professionalism here. Let's jump into Love some that. segments. Let's do a little bit of buy or sell, Matt. Why don't you hit me with one? Okay, Joe. Buy or sell World Cup. You be paying attention to the World Cup? Vamo. Yes, okay. let's do it. I don't know what that means. Um, it's a world game. Oh, okay. Let's go in Spanish. Oh, oh I, I should have known that. I took Spanish. I think you mean vamos. <laughs> we but, go. But vamos like, uh, like let's go! Okay. How like Brady yells. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, let's let's move on. Um, speaking of the Spanish language, um, Landon Donovan is um, he, he said that he is rooting for Mexico, and he, he's come out in basically in support of Team USA, USMNT, his biggest rival. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people have a little bit of an issue with that. They're, they're saying why you're rooting for your rival, saying you know Michigan fans don't root for Ohio State. Joe, are you on board with Mexico as it should be you know Team USA fans adopted team? Um. Yes and no. I'll, I'll buy it just to not. Uh, I'll buy it because I don't have a problem with it. Uh, pick up whatever team you like. Usually, my pecking order is all based off emotion and allegiance when it comes to the World Cup because I'm not an avid soccer fan. I do enjoy the sport, but I'm, I'm not really in tune with it. So I just go off of my nationality. My allegiances are the United States and Italy, and neither of which are in the World Cup this year. So I'm just watching as a spectator. I have no dog in the fight. And uh, I'm just looking for those moments like Mexico uh, coming through against the Germans or uh, England coming through in the 91st minute yesterday with a header. That's more what I'm looking for. The drama, the pageantry, things of those sorts. Um, so I'll buy it just because I have no problem with it. Yeah, I 
I, I don't think I would root for, I, I could do that, root for the biggest rivalry. I don't really have a problem with him because he has personal connections to some guys on the team. He grew up with a lot of them, and that's kind of the way he wants to go. Fine. But yeah, I, I'm much more watching it to see like really cool stuff happen, like Cristiano Ronaldo tie Spain on, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, the, the free kick with like eight in the 80th minute, whatever it was. That That's really more why I watch. So even when the U.S. is in it, like I root for them, but I know they're not actually going to win the thing. So I kind of just root for the big moment. Uh, that said, I've adopted Belgium as my team this year. Not Belgium. totally not because I invested in them because, because of the I waffles? want Belgium. Yeah, I'm a big waffle fan. Because of the waffles. That's How could you perfect. not like the waffles? <laughs> Matt, uh, I got to buy or sell for you right here. Uh, buy or sell the mishandling of Barry Trotz. Barry Trotz relieved or resigns, pardon me, uh, as head coach of the Washington Capitals just 11 days after hoisting the Stanley Cup. The last coach to not be retained after winning the Stanley Cup was Scotty Bowman, 2002, with the Detroit Red Wings. He retired. Barry Trotz has no such plans. Buy or sell the mistreatment or the mishandling of Barry Trotz. I'm okay with it simply because there had kind of been, this was his choice. Uh, This wasn't Washington saying, we don't want you back. Um, Mm -hmm. There was apparently a resignation clause in his contract. It was fairly complicated. I kind of read it over, but I hadn't even read it over a couple times. Basically, he had two more years left on the deal, but if he hit so many certain, you know, benefits or uh, uh, milestone, whatever you have, can't think of the word right now hit so many uh milestones that he would be able to opt out and basically resign and become a coaching free agent that's seems like what he wanted to do it seems like for a while now he'd wanted to explore all of his options and he's probably going to get paid a whole lot of money now that they want to cup somewhere else um and I, i'm not I, i'm okay with it i think washington handled it fine i'm sure they tried to retain it but it, it just seems more like barry trotz kind of wanted out of washington gotcha uh, I, got, it's my I, got, I got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing for you there. My I got turn. nothing for you I, there. I you just, sure? You want to talk a little more about – let's talk Washington Capitals coaching search, Joe. No, Where I do you think they're going? I'm selling it just because I thought that a, uh, a coach of that caliber who just delivered you uh, – You do think cup a cup tends to cure a pat on the back. I agree. pat on the back. But that's what I'm saying. I think he does this. I think Washington did try to give it to him. I think he just was more ready to kind of move on and be on to the next one. From what I heard is they had an under-the-table deal in 2014 that he would be extended for X amount of dollars that was not figuring in a Stanley Cup uh, champion, uh, a championship. And now that they do have the Cup, Barry Trotz felt like that needed to be renegotiated. Uh, management did not, and they couldn't come could come to a common place. It, uh, it, is a, it is a business <clears throat> when it comes down to it at the end, though, Joe. But we, we, we didn't get to talk about U.S. Open yet which I know we you're have probably not. itching to talk about because we're a, we're a golf podcast. We're a Tiger podcast, RIP Tiger. Um, that The boat didn't work. Can you believe it? It did. The he yacht come didn't in, work. He could have come in on a, a duck boat. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered if he landed on the 18th green. The, the ship or whatever he landed would have rolled off into a side, greenside bunker. So I'm not putting much stock into Tiger's performance at the U.S. Right, Open. How, how much buyer still you're putting all that stock into the poor performances into the USGA's handling of Shinnecock and preparation and, and all that stuff? Buy or sell the USGA kind of flubbed this one a little bit. I'm going to buy that because it's always interesting to see these guys toil with a golf course the way they did. And I understand it's the U.S. Open and they want the winner to be within four strokes of even par. Last year, I believe Brooks Kepka won at what was he? 14 under something like that. I was like 17, I think. And the USGA felt embarrassed for some reason. I lean more towards that. That's why people are tuning in. That's 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 what's going to get people to watch if Tiger's not in the mix is – the birdies, the good scores, the eagles, the hole outs. And I do understand, again, it is the U.S. Open and, and guys need to struggle with these sorts of uh, challenges. But it's not viewer friendly when it, when it gets to that point. And Brooks Kepka had a putt to get through at even par. And I feel like the USGA would have been completely vindicated if he knocks down that putt. Not to say that they're not mm-hmm. feeling themselves in the way they set it up. But Saturday's golf course... Uh, reduce the world's best to guys who just didn't even want to be out there. And we saw that with Phil. We'll get to that in a little bit. We saw that with other guys just giving into the frustration where these are some of the most mentally tough athletes. And I know they're golfers and it's not physically grueling, but what it takes to perform at that level mentally can't be understated. Guys are quitting on it 
guys were quitting out there. Jason Duffner holed out for Eagle, and I know he doesn't show a lot of emotion, but he didn't even want to go get the ball. He just walked up. He, everyone wanted to be done. Phil wanted to be done, and I think that's where you start uh, running into some issues. I do think the USGA needs to figure out a way to keep things competitive to where the winner is within four strokes of even par, but your last place finisher isn't 25 over. There's got to be some way some sort of to have a medium. course that's receptive but still challenging. And Saturday wasn't receptive. The course that played out there on Sunday was a little bit more of what I'd like to see from a U.S. Open uh, challenge for these guys. I think you hit it on the head when you said that they were a little bit embarrassed by what happened at Aaron Hills last year because that whole buildup mm-hmm. to Aaron Hills last year was how difficult that course is going to be and how you know people are going to be struggling to hit par and, and all that type of stuff. And they basically tout as that as one of the most difficult U.S. Open courses you know, in, in recent history, and then you, you saw them all tear it up. Um, I, I'm kind of okay with, with everything except for Saturday. Saturday was the one day that really did get out of hand a little bit. I, I thought you know Monday and Tuesday were, were difficult, but fair. You still had guys going out and firing under par when they played well. Uh, same thing with Sunday. I mean, I... The U.S. Open is supposed to be the the toughest test in golf, and I, I agree that Saturday got a little bit out of hand, but I thought three of the four days I was fine with. I, I know you said a lot of people tune in for the birdies and, and you know see people make these ridiculous shots, and I, I do agree to an extent that you shouldn't be punished for hitting what should be a pretty good shot, but at the same time, I like seeing, you know, Dustin Johnson have to work through, you know, having to scramble a little bit. I like seeing these golfers have to struggle a little bit and, you know, make those ridiculous shots even more ridiculous by, you know, knowing what the course is, seeing what the course is, and and, and getting through a persevering. Anyway, Saturday was next to impossible to do that, which is why I had a problem with Saturday afternoon. But for the most part, I'm okay with seeing these guys struggle as long as it's fair. And I think that three of the four days, that course was very, very difficult. But as we saw from some of the scores put out, they're also fair. You, you vying for a job at the USGA or what? Uh, if they want to hire me, sure. I don't think they listen to this <laughs> podcast, but if they want to. You never know. You never know who's out there listening. Matt, fair. my final buy or sell here going to be along the same lines. Uh, one guy who just uh, struggled with the frustration a little wave, bit. Wave the white the flag a little bit. Wave the white flag. And the world, the golf world oh. is coming down on this guy right now. Phil Mickelson intentionally puts a rolling ball back to the hole just to get done, as he said, move on to the next hole and finish things off. Buy or sell the absolute uh, vitriol that that Phil Mickelson is being met with due to his, uh, uh, let's say, temper explosion? I don't know, whatever you would call it. Due to his, uh, his mental lapse of... Let's call it a mental lapse of judgment. Let's call Jim, it a mental I lapse just, of judgment. Let me say this. I'm, I'm glad... My, my one-year-old niece, Hannah, is not quite old enough to, to understand and comprehend what she's seeing on TV because I think had she been able to, she'd have been scarred for life seeing that, Joe. Can you oh, imagine no, it would have been terrible. a man it darting been across a green to stop his, his golf ball in a tournament? Oh, my I God. I loved it. Uh, I was. I okay. loved it. I didn't I love it. it I didn't it love it. Me fe- I it, loved it because it made me feel like Phil Mickelson. Like I. That's fair. That well, I've done that. Of course. You shouldn't do yeah. that in a U.S. Open. You just shouldn't. <laughs> it's it's bad. It's not good. And I'm not trying to say what Phil did was good. But these people saying like, think of the children. Oh my God! Yeah. Like they're going to be. You, how the golf golf will never be the same. The spirit of golf is that. Shut up. I heard people comparing just shut up. Tyson biting holy. Oh my god! He stopped to, like, a golf ball. He was he stopped a golf ball ten shots off the lead on Saturday. He wasn't going to win. He was way out of it. He shouldn't have done it. No, but at the same time, he just stopped a golf ball. He took his two stroke penalty and he played. Just can we can we applaud his understanding of the rules there too? Yeah, that was that was. I, I think that, that was, you know honestly, now, I think that was, was more so him underlined. him and his caddy brainstorming the rest of the way. Like, all right, what's my explanation yeah. here? What am I going to say? We, we should say yeah. I knew the rule and that's why I did it. That that's yeah. that's what happened. But at the same time, good for you. He came up with a good explanation. Probably wasn't the right one, but at the, or the real one. But at the same time, I'm not. If I'm him, I don't want to go chase my ball all the way down and putt up again. And quite quite honestly, he probably he did save it. He probably saved a shot by doing save that. Save the stroke, yeah. yeah. I, I just don't understand the backlash. And uh, no, it's not the time nor the place for it. But um, the positive, the silver lining in it is seeing the human element of, uh, of a professional professional golfer in that situation hopefully now maybe he can get rid of those maybe mize and main will drop that sponsorship because oh, they're God. so offended and we don't <laughs> see know, phil playing in button downs anymore 
Phil's always been a stick it to the man type guy. Phil's always uh, been in opposition of the rules or been outspoken against certain things. This is this shouldn't come as a surprise that Phil it, it kind of stood up to the USGA by being defiant in that moment. Yeah, maybe he felt he was the guy who kind of needed to do it and set an example and saw his opportunity and acted. I, I don't know, but I'm with you, Phil. We're a pro Phil podcast. <laughs> uh, Matt, you got anything else for the people before uh, we shut them down? I don't think I do, Joe. Did I have anything? Mm-hmm. You would remember, not me. Well, oh, we got the NHL draft come up here, Joe. I got to talk a little bit about that. We, this might be uh, Matt's hockey minute. Matt's hockey minute. We haven't had one in a while. Do we have music? I'll make music. Uh, um, you're on the clock starting now. Okay, I believe we have the draft. I think it's Wednesday. I'm not sure. It's either Wednesday or Friday. Obviously, not the same night as the NBA draft. Um, but y- you might see some movement here. I, there's some rumblings that the Blackhawks are looking to move that number eight pick because whoever they get there might not be a guy who's ready to play for two, three years. Um, there's also some rumblings might see Marion Hosa's contract moved out of here, which would help them from a salary cap standpoint right now. I think the name to look at that the Hawks might try and go out and make a big splash is defenseman Justin Falk out, out of Carolina. He's might remember, might remember him from the Olympics. He, he's been a Team USA guy. He's a right-handed shot, could slot right in next to Duncan Keith. Would cost them a little bit, but that, that number eight pick would be a great start. So that's my that's my keep an eye out. That's a keep a lookout for the NHL draft this, this week. The Blackhawks, I do believe, will make a splash and be in the headlines. Ooh, Matt coming in 12 seconds under time. That's Matt's Hockey 48 seconds for you. Doesn't have the same ring as Matt's Hockey Minute, but still. I think it's ironic that it was the same amount of seconds as the amount of minutes in an NBA game. Whoa, and that's full circle for you on the Moose and Runes podcast. <laughs> we don't even need to shut it down. That's just shut no, it down. No, forget a shutdown. That's the shutdown. Hit the music if you want. But uh, thank you again to Mark Shanowski for coming on here, shedding light on some things leading up to Thursday's NBA draft. It's going to be a great watch. We'll have plenty to talk about next week on the tail end of it. So again, thank you to Mark Shanowski and thank you to you guys, the viewers, for always tuning in. Shoot us your questions. We're going to get back into the mailbag next week. We uh, we enjoy those, especially as the uh, the sporting season, the sporting news cycle takes a downturn it's, here. It's you guys the dry care. season. We can, we it's can the stay. dry season. It's the dry season. You guys carry us through with your mailbag questions. Come one, come all, any and all questions. We appreciate them and we love talking about them. So thank you guys, the viewers, and thank you to you, Matt Rooney, for always being a partner in crime here. That's going to do it for the Moose and Runes podcast, episode 61. For Matt Rooney, I'm Joe Musso. We'll see you. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. <laughs> Chicken on the steak was phenomenal.